Today's psalm sounds uh, different than many of the psalms that you and I might be familiar with. Uh, if you've read through the, the psalms themselves, uh, this one sounds different. It has a different tone, a different feel to it. It's not just the subject matter itself, but it's the actual way that it's constructed. Uh, the psalm here sounds much more like we might encounter in the Jewish wisdom literature. It sounds and reads like what you might hear in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, and, and some of those themes first. Uh, instance are actually picked up uh, in those books and unlike a, a song or a prayer we might offer to God this psalm according to Michael Wilcock uh, operates in a different way it's a telling ourselves and others truths from God so it's not actually saying something to God but it's truths from God and at first glance it looks like we're going to talk about money today right money 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 all right one of the great taboo conversations of our culture. Of course, you could add that to religion and politics. And oftentimes, as I say, when we talk about money, we're already talking about religion, so why not go into money as well? But we're not supposed to talk about money. But yet, here's this ancient writer doing just that, talking about money. And they're inviting us to do just the same here this morning. And not just any kind of talk, but there's a song here. What type of person would create a song about money. I mean, what type of person in their right mind would do that? Of course, artists in our own age do that all the time, right? We see that all the time. Whether that be Barrett Strong's 1959 Money, That's What I Want, or looking at Wu-Tang Clan's 1993 Kareem, or should I say C-R-E-A-M, right, which stands for Cash Rules Everything Around Me, or any number of songs. So this list could go on and on. I was... I was, watching, uh, I was watching a number of them this week on YouTube. But that list could be much more longer. And that's, that's, there's no great surprise in all that. As we are living in a material world. Right? You want to fill in the rest there? Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 he did that. Okay, that happened. Go ahead, check your clocks and calendars, the date that that actually happened on. But the more important question that our psalmist is looking at here, the one that the psalmist will say in verse 4 that they will solve to the music of the harp goes beyond mere coin at this point. Instead, the artist will expound on one of the great questions of life. So this morning, more than a, a, a discussion here, or a thinking or pondering on money, we're going to ponder one of the great questions of life. And that question is in verse 5. Why should I fear in times of trouble. Why should I fear in times of trouble? That's the question our psalmist posed this morning. And what trouble it was for them. If you look at your text here, powerful persons who use their resources to oppress and intimidate and have their way. That's what the psalmist is dealing with. It's a good thing we don't deal with that in our day, right? That that's not an issue for us, that powerful people don't push people around. The psalmist sees a godless bunch here. And this group that the psalmist has in mind uh, is identified in a couple different ways. One, they're surrounding the psalmist. The psalmist says in the second part of verse 5, the iniquity of my persecutors surrounds me. That absolute feeling of being crushed by the surrounding grasp of those who have more power and prestige. It seems to be a group that's invincible, one that can't be stopped, and there's nowhere you can go to get away from them goes on to say that this same group is assured of their own strength. This self-assured group, they trust in their wealth and they boast in the abundance of their riches, as the psalmist identifies in verse 6. Admittedly, 
Trusting in one's own riches and wealth is a rather flimsy structure to place your trust on. It's rather flimsy. As the Jewish sages have observed the fleeting nature of riches, when they write in Proverbs 23, 5, when your eyes light upon it, it is gone, for suddenly it takes wings to itself, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's your riches, gone. Poof. And you might know stories from your own life, or maybe stories from a family member or a friend who had a large amount of wealth suddenly for it to be gone. Maybe you worked for Washington Mutual at one time. <laughs> right? It can go quickly. It can disappear just as fast as it comes. But even so, in this life, riches buy power and they buy access. They do that today. They do that back then when this author is writing. And such access can pervert one's thinking into believing something is more certain than it actually is. It causes us to think differently than what reality might be speaking so why should I fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear in times of trouble? If that question was posed to this bunch that the psalmist has in mind here, it would be met with an altogether different answer than the conclusion that this psalmist is going to draw for themselves. This bunch would find security in their riches. But that answer invites even worse news in verses 7 through 9 in our text. And this headline is not going to shock any of us this morning at least I'm hoping the following headline will not shock you as much. Riches won't stave off death. You can't buy yourself out of the grave. You can't buy yourself away from where we're all going. And you can't buy it for other people as well. There's no amount of ransom that could be paid. And the wealthy, of course, in the ancient world, even today, would know the threat of ransom demands and kidnappings. We see that in our world today. None of that could thwart off death. And not just for our own lives as we read in our translation or as we heard uh, read here in the NRSV UE, um, but also when it talks about buying or paying the ransom for others. There's actually a variant reading in our text, this particular chapter in the Bible, when it comes to that particular verse. There's a variant reading that shows up uh, in some, uh, some of the translations of the day as well as in the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that variant reading basically takes, in Hebrew, you have the consonants and you fill in vowels. If you fill in different vowels for the same consonants, this is where that variant reading comes in. Has anybody geeked out too much already? That was too much for you already? I said, wait a second here, Jimmy, I, I only had a donut for breakfast. But what happens when that reading gets changed, that variation? It translates, no one can ransom a brother. And that's actually a footnote uh, to our own English translation that that's an option there. So the idea of ransoming yourself or paying the ransom for yourself or even paying for the ransom of the other, doesn't matter. You can't do either one with your wealth. It won't save you from death. Modern medicine, of course, affords us and affords many of us the ability to prolong our lives. And if you walk down any uh, a cancer ward or any uh, uh, type of situation where people are, are facing uh, terminal illnesses, there's all kinds of efforts that are made to prolong life. And that's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to care for people, but it comes at a cost. It comes at a very real cost. The more affluent, of course, being able to cover the cost, find access to greater levels of care, more variety of care, and better care facilities. I remember back east uh, where we lived was a very affluent part of the country, and they had just 
uh, remodeled one of the local hospitals. And it was amazing. It was amazing how big and how, how just extraordinary the rooms were. I, was, I actually visited one room uh, short, shortly towards the end of our time there in Connecticut. We were living in, in an apartment. I visited one room that was bigger than my apartment room, like the main room there. And there was only one person in the room. And so this idea that the affluent having more access to care and facilities, that wouldn't be different in the ancient world either. They'd have more access to be able to purchase more help, more support, more care. And coming for the ride here, of course, with all, this, all these things in medicine, is all kinds of snake oils. Things that are peddled, that promise uh, and actually prey on the sick and the fearful, promising health and relief. All kinds of things that you can buy for not too much money, actually for a lot of money. And they prey on our, our fears and the fear of death. But in the end, verse 8, we can't buy a ransom or a way out. In verse 9, we see the day death will come into view. It will come into view for each one of us. And the pit, we see in verse 9, is a reference to that place we are headed. The place of the dead. How are you feeling right now? Feeling a little bit down now? Have a hot dog. Celebrate the fourth. But what about the power? What about the prestige and the possessions that are accumulated throughout life? The tangible morsels that give these power brokers their sense of security. What about the stuff? Well, you've heard the adage, hearses don't pull trailers, right? There's no trailers behind a hearse. Verse 17 says as much. That even those items that are physically buried with the rich become targets for thieves, robbers, and archaeologists. Right? Ask King Tut about that. So those scoundrels who prey on you today, as the psalmist would say here, don't fear them. Cheer up. They don't go on pillaging forever. Right? As the psalmist repeat in verse 12 and verse 20, mortals cannot abide in their pomp. They are like the animals that perish. That's a rather sobering picture, recognizing that we ourselves are mortals as well. And of course, here come several unpleasant pictures from the psalmist at this point. Verse 10, death awaits both wise and fool. So no matter how smart or wise the person might think they are, it comes for both. doesn't matter where you're at there. Verse 14, the first part of that, death shall be their shepherd. That's not a pleasant picture. Second part of verse 14, Sheol shall be their home. That's not pleasant either. And verse 19, they shall never again see the light. They'll be dead, dead, dead. These bullies stake their claim in short-term securities. That's where they invested their life's earnings. Only to be exposed as being as vulnerable as the rest. But this gives little assurance to the reader, as I said before. After all, we are all mortals as well. And so we might think, although they might be getting what they have coming, that doesn't assure me all that much in this life now, does it? Doesn't make me feel great. Doesn't seem all that promising for the victim, whose only peace comes when they finally rest in their own grave. Is that where the peace comes from? Where's the good news in all of that? There's a far greater and more certain security than what the powerful have staked their claim to in this text. Their riches could not cover the ransom. Of course, we said already that was required 
nor are they able to redeem themselves or anyone from the grave. But there is one who can. There is one who can, and that's good news. And we hear that in verse 15. Amidst all the stuff that we hear in the psalm, in verse 15, suddenly the good news looks out to us. That word starts to go out. It says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And the picture here is more than our translated received me holds. That's actually a, a rather tame version here. Peter Craigie and Marvin Tate use alliteration to capture the sense of the Hebrew here when they translate this same sentence. Surely God will redeem me, even from Sheol's grasp, for he will take hold of me. Right, that's a bigger picture than just receiving. Open the door and say, come on in. It's a grabbing and holding there. Using similar imagery, Eugene Peterson renders in his message translation, but me, God snatches me from the clutch of death. He reaches down and grabs me. That's a more active presence of God. And that's something. There's a famous old sermon by an old preacher named Jonathan Edwards. You know Jonathan Edwards? Anybody know good old Jay Edwards? Way back when he had sinners in the hands of an angry God. How's that for a sermon title? That'll get your attention. In fact, a while back when I was living in, uh, back in the east, I drove uh, to Enfield, Connecticut to go visit the location where he preached that sermon. And today if you go there, there's a rock with a plaque on it that says, here's the location where Jonathan Edwards preached the famed sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's right at an intersection. And I stood there by that rock, and then I went and had some Chick-fil-A. It kind of gives you the ancient and the modern coming together. But for the psalmist and for us today, the picture we have here and the one that we see in verse 15 would have a different kind of title. It's the picture of mortals in the resurrection powerful embrace of the faithful, loving, and living God. That's the picture that we have here in that verse 15. And it's a powerful image uh, for us to hear, and not only to hear, to own in our very lives. Psalm 49, though, is not a song just for us. It's a song for the world. That's where verse 1 begins. It's a call out to the entire world. And not only a call to the world, north, south, east, and west, but it's also a call to people from every lot of life. And that's what verse 2 tells us. And though we in, in and of ourselves do not have the power to pay the ransom, to re receive ourselves from the grave, or to redeem ourselves. We don't have that power. We don't have that capacity. We don't have those riches or wealth. There's no amount of dollars we could apply to that, even though we don't have those things. Scripture bears witness here to God's love in Jesus Christ. Where we read in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus gave his life for the ransom for many. Jesus is the good shepherd according to John's gospel. Think about that shepherd of death, that monstrous shepherd that leads those who fall into its grasp, into that place where there's no light. But according to Revelation 7, 17, in Jesus Christ we have an altogether different shepherd. One that looks completely different than the picture painted by the psalmist. In Revelation we read that this shepherd will guide us to the springs of the water of life. 
Malcolm Geit picks up our faithful response to God's love and faithfulness in his own reflections here on this particular song. When he writes this, Between their fatuous desires and fears, with fickle fortunes that they fear to share, keep your security in Christ who hears the slightest murmur of your smallest prayer. And do not be afraid, but trust in him. Your hearts in heaven, keep your treasure there. In conclusion, there's a story that Jesus told. And it's recorded for us in Luke's gospel. The story simply begins this way. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. You heard this one? And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. That's how Jesus begins the story in Luke chapter 16. The story, of course, is remembered as the rich man and Lazarus, oftentimes titled that way. The rich man doesn't have a name in the story. Sometimes when it's uh, relayed, there's a, a word that's given or a name given to the rich man, but that word just means rich man. But here we have a figure named Lazarus who's named. And what a fitting name. The name Lazarus is based on uh, another name, Eliezer, which means God has helped. And oh, has God helped in that story. And the story goes on to tell that torment of the one uh, while the other enjoys eternal reward at the side of Abraham. The temptation is to make this story about rich versus poor. To turn Jesus' word into some sort of the rich is bad and the poor is good. But we realize that Abraham was actually rich if you go back and read the stories early in scripture. And just as the temptation might be to take Psalm 49 and do the same, we need to hear something else. That both speak to something more. And it speaks to this question for us this morning. Will we trust God? It's printed on our money. Will we trust God with our hearts? Will we have that be printed on our hearts and our lives? Will our stories read that way, that we were ones who trusted in God? And it finds expression that God is driving our lives. Will we trust God with our lives? We allow God to speak uh, to those, those places and the way that we live with gratitude and expressions of joy and love and kindness. Or will we become like this brood that we've read about in Psalm 49 already? There's a kind of a common practice. And I don't know if you've ever thought this way. I know I've thought this way. If you ever were given like a, a, a terminal diagnosis, what would you do? What's the first thing you do? And I'm like, I'd go to Hawaii, right? It's like you know, some sort of... Something like that, or I'd make amends with somebody, or, you know, whatever the list you might have. It's, you might call it the terminal bucket list, right? It's the one you do when you know time is up, and you only got so much time to go with. I had a friend who actually was given such a diagnosis, and I asked her, what are you going to go do? And she said, I'm going to go eat a cheeseburger. That's like, wow, because she hadn't had a cheeseburger in so long. She was trying to live healthy um, to stave off death, to stave off the illness. And so the first thing she did was go eat a cheeseburger. But we have lists like that we make and we create and those lists, in a lot of ways, they show our priorities. They kind of show the places where we see our lives, we envision ourselves. But what would that list look like if it was filling out that question, I trust God with my life? 
what would be on that list? What would be on that list for you? Something worth considering here next day and next weeks with whatever time God has given us in this life. But here's the thing. If God has given us life, if God by God's Spirit has breathed new life into us, if God by God's Son has paid our ransom that we might enjoy life after life, why should I fear in times of trouble? Why should I fear? Why should I be afraid when I'm in the hands of the author of life who holds me now and is faithful to hold me forever? May we hold that in our hearts this day and forever.